0: This episode of reality escape pod is brought to you by morty virtual escape games and patreon supporters like you welcome to the reality escape pod your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world i'm david spira alongside my co-host pg law together we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff today's guest is tommy haunton the co-creator of Stash House in Los Angeles, California, Tommy is a prolific experience designer who's worked on so many escape room and immersive projects, some you've heard of, some you haven't, and plenty he can't talk about. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you for having me. We're truly thrilled to have you. You have been on a list of inevitable guests, and uh, <laughs> you've come up a few times. <laughs> oh
1: God! I love it that I'm, I'm inevitable. That's great.
2: <laughs> I have never heard anybody's name mentioned so often on this podcast as yours. And full disclosure, Tommy is one of my best friends, and we play together all the time in LA.
0: Yeah, Tommy and I think uh, King's Quest are
1: probably the most commonly brought up things. <laughs> oh my God! Well, I, I'm honored to be in, in that lineage of ever mentioned. <laughs> Tommy,
0: one of the paradoxes of your life is that you are an introvert introvert. But you are also arguably the best connected creator in the U.S. immersive scene. I've had reporters tell us when researching escape rooms that all roads lead to room escape artist. But Lisa and I have long felt that all roads lead to Tommy Houghton. <laughs> How have you gone about networking?
1: I mean, that is really a four-letter word in my head, at least when I first started approaching it. So to give a little background and context, I came to L.A. to do film and TV, and the idea of networking was the thing you had to do. I didn't get it. I am very socially awkward. If I could, I would live in a cave and never interact with anyone. But I also know that life would be incredibly sad and lonely if I didn't glad to hear that the pandemic has gone well for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, honestly, this is horrible to say, but the part of the pandemic I didn't mind was staying indoors and not really seeing anyone. But on the other side, I've learned the benefit of having friends and people and caring about people. So learning in film and TV how to network, was just, I didn't get it, it didn't connect at all. Having to get coffee and use people in some way to further your career and that they weren't around you because they liked you or thought you had talent or liked what you were doing. It just i i tried it a bunch and at one point don who became my co-owner of stash house we had hundreds of meetings around town trying to sell scripts and we had agents and managers and kept failing upwards and we were meeting people and i just did not get the schmoozing the parties the going out for drinks and our career suffered from it don is a consummate networker he can meet people he's amazing i am terrible at it so Long story short, I ended up working at Disney. I was miserable. I was miserable writing and just trying to make it in the space. And what changed everything was meeting people who made escape rooms and doing immersive theater. And to me, I was just insanely curious about them and what they did. And at one point, I realized, oh, talking to these people... That's networking. I don't have to sit there and figure out ways to quote-unquote use people. To me, it was playing kind of on hard mode in that the people I was talking to, I actually had to kind of care about a little bit and be interested in them and want to see them succeed. And so after I was fired from Disney, the only thing I could possibly think of doing was not wanting to go back and do what I was doing. And so the only road out was through other people, just connecting and learning what this industry had to offer. And... It was very, very early, but it was just me seeing, oh, cool, this person does something interesting. I want to talk to them. And I would email that person and say, hey, you do something cool. I'd love to buy you a coffee. And so to me, it's still the fear of like, if you look at a car that's coming towards you and you don't get out of the way, that paranoia and scared that you're going to die. That's kind of how I feel talking to people. I've gotten really good at ignoring that feeling and knowing that it's not going to kill me, but it's still there. It's still every single time I talk to a person, it requires the biggest effort, but I've gotten really good at having tips and tricks to avoid that fear. And part of it is just, again, being insanely curious. And so, yeah, it just happens to be whenever I see a project or a person or a thing that interests me, I just want to reach out to say hi and how I can help support. And most people think I'm full of crap when I say that. But in reality, I mean that. And I've done crazy stuff from helping people I barely know move to like recording stuff or doing presentations with people. I'll do whatever because I do want to see this industry succeed and people who are talented and cool succeed. And I just did that for six years. And that's to answer your question, why? It reminds me of something
0: that a friend of mine, Adriana, she was kind of a mentor for me very early in my career, had told me when I was dealing with a similar struggle, which was that networking is just socializing
1: with purpose. That's a good... I like that. That's a really... I mean, I wish I had known that seven years ago, but I love that. Yeah, it was really helpful.
2: I think, Tommy, what you're really good at is when you network with people... You are really good at your follow through. So, a lot of times people will meet up. Oh, we should get together later. We should play a room. We should do this. And they don't. But, like, I feel like you're really good at reaching out. Hey, remember, let's play that room that we talked about. So, you're really good at that follow through. And uh, we interviewed Chris Waters, and he told us that you reached out to him, and he's like, I thought there was some kind of secret cabal, like a secret puzzle society, because you were like, we've been curious about you. <laughs> and he was like, who's we? Like, what, what's, what's, oh uh, what's God, going on? That makes me sound
1: so awful. I mean, no, it's just like, <laughs> other awesome. someone, someone sent me a message saying, do you know anything about this? I'm like, no, cool, I'll reach out. Oh. That's the thing is, to me, it's like, I have no shame in like just wanting to talk to people for no other reason, just learning what they're up to and how I can help. And I don't know, people may call me on it, but like genuinely, I I like helping people. And it's really because I wouldn't be sitting here if people didn't help me. Marty Parker, kind of the Johnny Appleseed of escape rooms in the early days with Trapped in room with a Zombie. That's a very good way of describing him. He was a very early mentor to me. And it came because I played his game in LA. It was basically the first one out here. And I messaged him and just said, I would love to help or do anything. And he was the first person in this space to take me seriously. And we had a phone call and he was like, yeah, I'd love to work with you. And he taught me so much and is one of the sweetest people in, in the space. And he did a lot for just giving me the confidence to realize that I actually had something to share in the space. And that took him uh, you know, a couple hours out of his life to really spend an email, a phone call, some follow-up phone calls. That's it. And the impact it had on me was huge. And if like if I can, in some small way, have an impact on someone in a positive way, I owe it to other people because someone did it for me.
2: That's the other thing I noticed is that I've also met several people that when your names come up, they always refer to you as like their mentor. It strikes me that you are really generous with your time in helping these people.
0: Before we dive into Stash House, you've mentioned that you were working for Disney before you got into immersive experiences. What lessons and scars did you pick up during your time there?
1: Yeah, so Disney was a trip. I worked there, and I was also writing on the side, film and TV, and so was doing a lot at once, and Disney was a weird sort of thing. I came out to write, and I had always expected to go in a route of working at an agency and sort of manning a desk and building contacts, and essentially, I would be miserable and poor for like three to four years networking, and then slowly use those connections to build up. That's how I was in my head thought about it. And then the writer's strike happened, and that caused the industry to kind of freeze. So jobs at agencies and other places were non-existent. So I was uh, temping for a small company and doing like really bad work for this production company. And a temp job at Disney opened up. And a friend of a friend got me an interview. And I went in, and it was for this sort of weird offshoot of the photo and publicity department that handled all of sort of the website's that the press used to connect to all of Disney's TV networks. And I had no qualifications and no skills that would have qualified me for this role. But I said I did. And then when they hired me, I had to learn those things very quickly. So it was interesting. It gave me access to the lot, which was incredibly valuable because I explored every inch of the corporate headquarters. I knew that place like the back of my hand, and I loved it. I also abused the corporate directory and had meetings with people that probably would have gotten me fired. I met with some of the writers from Lost when that show was on the air. I would just managed to cold call people and BS my way into a meeting and have lunch with these people. It didn't do anything for my career because I didn't know how to follow up or do anything. I was like the dog that was chasing a car. And I got on the driver's seat and I didn't know what to do next. But it was kind of a cool like curiosity <laughs> that I was able to do these things. The real challenge with a company like Disney, and you'll see this across any sort of major conglomerate, is the political nature of the company and office politics. And I think that was probably the hardest part for me to align to. I had a chip on my shoulder that this was not my career. My career was writing. I was going to be a writer and an artist. And this was simply a means to an end day job that did give me access and credibility because a Disney email address is very credible in the world of entertainment. And you're able to BS what your job is. And my job was such, such a weird, fuzzy thing that I was able to go to the Oscars and to press tours and hobnob with celebrities, while also being able to go to the lot and take meetings during the day because my boss was incompetent and I could just make up a reason why I wasn't there and I was meeting Warner Brothers or Sony for movie projects. So it was really nice in that sense, but it was really hard political. Because the leadership there is so ingrained on budgets and line items that they don't care about people individually. The company at large often treats people like their numbers. And there are some very unfavorable nicknames about the company that I had heard prior. And having been in the machine for as long as I was, I completely get it. There is definitely a hierarchical structure. It is very like a feudal Game of Thrones style, where if you are not aligned with the leadership and have this connection to people, then you will be the first out. And if there's any leadership change, they will clean house and install their own executives under them. There are so many horror stories that I got to witness firsthand, just the cruelty and inhumanity of a giant sort of corporate culture mixed with the impersonal nature of bad leadership. And that was hard. Disney is a company that's beloved. And I still do love a lot of what the company produces. But seeing how the sausage is made, it just made me not want to work in an environment like that again and work for people who are not qualified to lead and don't care about their employees.
0: I went through a similar journey with a different multinational corporation that will not be named. I really can relate to what you're talking about.
1: I've always been very vocal and open about it. And to me, part of that is the catharsis of being able to admit that. Like, I was very depressed never suicidal, never on that level, but on the verge of just feeling like trash and feeling like I'm not worth anything creatively. On the other side, writing wise, I was sitting there writing scripts that weren't going anywhere. Don and I would get momentum writing wise and get an agent or manager and get meetings and then nothing would come. And then you're sitting there having to write a new script, which takes time to write a decent one. And so my excitement of always leaving the job would crest right before a project would go out and then it wouldn't sell. And then we'd just be like back at the bottom again. And yeah, at a certain point I just felt worthless. And I hate to say the company traffics and making people feel paranoid and being grateful they still have jobs, but it does. And I, I hated, I didn't like myself. And so the thing that really kicked my rear into getting into something I did was after getting fired. And I was flat out fired, like nothing in intored. I was just lazy and made a mistake and didn't correct it and lied about it. And when they caught me, I had been vocal enough about how I didn't like what leadership was doing, that I had basically loaded the gun and painted the target. All they did was had the ability to take a shot. It was very sudden. I had never been fired for anything in my life. And it was raw. And I would avoid driving by work because I live like a block away and I would go the long way just to avoid it. And so after like a month, I'm like, you know what? I'm fine. I'm just going to drive by like normal because it was on a a freeway, like it was major intersection. So I went by and I felt nothing. This this is where I spent eight years of my life. I felt nothing. I knew every nook and cranny of that neighborhood. And I felt like I had spent a month there and that genuinely terrified me because I had done so little of value in that time that all of the years they're compressed into a month in my head i can look back at grade school a college even my first couple years in la and i can tell you the stark difference between those years my years at disney i can't tell you the difference between those years because i did nothing and that scared me because that's eight years of living and that was the wake-up call i needed being like i can never let that happen again eight years is a long time especially in your 20s
2: well it's our gain i feel like This is one of the reasons why so many people in the escape room community in our industry, it's a cottage industry, right? And I think we we have a lot of people who are very creative minds like you, who are disillusioned and dissatisfied with the larger corporate life. And so that is actually one of the reasons why I love this industry so much is people get to chase after their own dreams. And I feel like a lot of people that are in this are here because they love what they're doing they feel fulfilled by it. I love that energy.
1: No, I think I really identified with people that were starting out doing this just because the trends are people were unhappy doing other things and they found enjoyment in being able to entertain and delight people. And to me, that's as pure as you can get. I love it. It was very impractical prior to this. Years before, I made scavenger hunts and I did stuff like this for fun. And you never in a million years could convince me growing up that this would be a real career. So seeing it pop up And then having the chance to sort of walk into the space and not only make it a hobby, but an actual career, that is a genuine dream come true. And I look back now and my worst days now are still better than my best days back in the past i will never ever forget the feeling of what it is like to be unhappy and to be grateful for what i have now and the people that i have in my life now who are wonderful amazing people such as yourselves like i i feel very lucky to be part of this community people have asked me like if you could go back in time and not work at disney would you do it no I think what I, the advice and lessons I would give is save money. Like if you're unhappy, save money. Like I spent my feelings, I would buy dumb stuff I didn't need. And so when I got fired, I didn't have that, that cushion or that nest. That's my advice to any friend
0: who tells me they're not liking work. I have two things I tell you. Every time you feel that you don't like your job, the first thing you do is to update your resume. And the second thing you do is don't go out for dinner.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. That's amazing. about save money. I wish I had done that. And the other thing was sort of, you know, don't be forced into something. Is there a way to make inroads and, and connect with people? And I did that a little bit here and there. It's hard to network
0: when you're feeling depressed. And I think that's yes. part of that's what gets people trapped in jobs that they hate is that. The job beats them down, their sense of self-worth evaporates, and you have to have some amount of self-worth to go out and meet new people. Whether you're dating or just trying to make friends or trying to network, if you don't feel like you have value, it's really hard to put out a version of yourself that other people are going to respond positively to. 100%. taking a moment to thank our sponsor Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in it so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. Morty is always updating and that's been true since it was in beta, and PG, I know you have a story about this, because you have opinions about things, and you fired off many of them to Andy at Morty.
2: David, I was so impressed with how responsive they were. I beta tested a very, very early version of Morty, and when I would finished playing around with it, I replied back to andy one of the founders with an entire laundry list of features that i wanted to see implemented so i had a whole list of all these my dream features you know if if i was designing an app this is what i would like to see and he literally replied to me in like two days and was like hey go check it out again and they implemented everything i i just i could not believe it it was so good everything i wanted they keep adding more and more features and like i said i Having talked to Andy, I know that he is so dedicated to the escape room community and to the user experience, and they really just want to make this the ultimate escape room tracking app.
0: You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. Let's shift gears and dig into escape rooms for a bit your game stash house has enjoyed a wonderful reputation in los angeles for quite a few years now i know that you're tired of your own game yes but i am curious what you feel you keyed into with stash house that resonates with so many players
1: I mean, I ask myself that a lot because I like looking at projects and ripping them apart and seeing what the DNA of it is. So, early days, the initial story was was there's a restaurant back in the day called Starry Kitchen. It was at one point a very popular, I think, Yelp top restaurant in LA. And it was speakeasy style. The address was not public and people raved. And it was because it was in a couple's apartment they had made an underground restaurant. And eventually they got shut down or discovered, but not before making a giant splash. And that led to book deals and actually executive chef being at restaurants. But it was a really clever model for making something feel underground. And so the initial conversation Don and I had was, could we do that with an escape room? And realistically, the answer is no. If you put one in an apartment, people think you're operating a brothel or you're a drug dealer, and you will get shut down. So from a practical purpose, no. But that led to the DNA of, can you give people that feeling in a real space? So that was always the operating standpoint of the story, and the space was a drug dealer's apartment, and we knew that flushing drugs at the end was going to be the thing.
0: Can you walk us through a little bit of what the narrative arc for the players are without spoiling too much?
1: Yeah. So with Stash House, the premise is that Ray Jones is a local Koreatown, which is the neighborhood in L.A. we're in, entrepreneur. And you've been invited uh, to come to his apartment. And that is how the game is set up. Shortly after you discover that he has a test to see if you're worthy of joining his gang, he has hidden cocaine packets in his old apartment and put puzzles in the space to test you, and has called the cops. And since the LAPD are notoriously slow, you have roughly 90 minutes to find the drugs and flush them before the cops arrive. And if you do, then you will be worthy of joining him. And if you don't, then you will get arrested.
2: I have long said before on this podcast, I really wish more people would do escape room themes that were urban and cool. Like, At a rave, at a music festival, at a club, Stash House is one of the few, if only ones I've seen that took a really realistic, gritty approach to that theme.
1: That was always the goal. So the idea of that grounding it in like, okay, we can't really put it in an apartment, but can we still make people feel? Because the idea of setting the story, like sitting in lobbies, And no offense to anyone who has one. Like I totally get the logical, reasonable, realistic idea of having a lobby and managing crowds. But from a standpoint of experience, I am sitting in a lobby, and then I'm walking through a door, and now I'm in ancient Egypt. I hated those experiences. To me, they pulled me out of it. And the GM is saying, okay, here's the room. There's the clock on the wall. Don't touch this prop because it's really sensitive. And if you need to get out, this door right here is – I hated it. To me, I always wanted experiences to start like a show. You go to the theater and you don't see the actors on stage like stretching and being like, oh, showtime. Okay, uh, well, I'm this character. Like, No, you see the curtain rise and you absorb it all at once. By like people showing up and having a curtain rise moment where you take in the story and the world in a way that lets you see it all for the first time. Once you see something, you can't unsee it. So we took that approach with Stash House and the idea of we have no signage. There's no sign. And we have a green light and we look like a weed shop, deliberate on purpose. People, when they first book through the ticketing site, which we just use Resova, which a lot of other sites do, you get an email from Ray ray is listed as the owner on the website on the yelp page on twitter like ray is our owner don and i built the experience for him when you were in the game you can leave you can look out the door we're not transporting you anywhere you are exactly at the address at the time and place there is no magic circle taking you to egypt or a submarine i love those moments but for me i'm like i want to try can we ground this as much as possible so that the magic circle is practically invisible and people don't know when they're stepping into our world. There are a lot of early things that we sort of tweaked and tested to really get to the level of surprising people, and I love that. And when they show up, they aren't quite sure if Ray is real. They know it's an escape room. They know it's a game. But the premise just feels real and gritty, and people feel weird or unsettled about seeing the outside. I love that. You know, we want people to feel a little bit of discomfort, but obviously knowing they're safe. We're not putting them in a dangerous situation. And starting off that way is always just a really interesting way to get them in that world since stash house is blurring that line
0: between fiction and reality what steps do you take to preserve the magic circle and ensure that the players know that the game is just a game and there aren't actually drugs here the cops aren't actually coming how do you keep them in that suspension of disbelief without it becoming unnerving
1: I think, first of all, they know what they're getting themselves into. It's not like we grab them off the street and shove them in. They know they're opting in to come to play a game. We have a live person doing onboarding. The rules are clearly stated. We don't explicitly say this is a game, but it is very, very clear, and we've never had anyone not understand that. And then at the end, the curtain is more or less lifted when you succeed and you're brought into the back for the photo moment. So people know they're not really inducted into a gang. Um <laughs> I like playing with those moments, though, of when the curtain can lift, having that sufficient victory time, and looking at sort of an adrenaline map. Because there's a lot of ways to look at how you design, and a lot of ours was very early on looking at adrenaline maps. So, for example, when someone is reading reviews and looking to book a ticket, that moment of booking a ticket is adrenaline going up because it means you've scheduled something. And then you have an ellipsis of time between when they book that ticket and then show up at your door. And so then they're driving to you, adrenaline's going up. But then they're looking for parking, and parking in our a neighborhood sucks. So that is an adrenaline going down. And they're finally at the front of the door, and then they go to the bathroom. and that's, So the idea of looking at these adrenaline moments, and then the game starts, adrenaline up, looking at your puzzles and where bottlenecks are, you really want one of your highest adrenaline moments to be the ending and to be the moment of victory. And then you kind of want to shove them out the door as fast as you can from the victory moment. You want to get the photo answer any questions, do any sort of walkthroughs very quickly, because you want them to be outside buzzing with that adrenaline going, talking about how much fun they had, and bonding as people. To me, a lot of the experience is really about how we onboard, offboard, and get people out feeling excited and wanting to do another game. Obviously, we don't have a second game, so we want them to still be excited. And we do talk about the games we love in the area, because the person most likely to book another game is someone that just played one and had fun. And so keeping that momentum going was always very important and and sort of looking at it from that lens.
2: Tommy's an adrenaline dealer. This is a very appropriate for you.
1: <laughs> Although <laughs> and I used house. to use, I used to use the analogy that like as an experienced designer, I am a drug dealer because your primary drugs are dopamine and adrenaline. I said that at a talk and a guy sent me a very nasty, I don't use social media. So I, I got a notification a few days after uh, he basically said that I was a monster for using that term drug dealer. Cause he apparently was one and almost got arrested and said, I didn't know the experience. And I didn't have the right to use that phrase. So I have since retired saying that, but It really is about knowing how to push adrenaline and dopamine in certain moments. Now, obviously, it can't just be jump scares. So the goal is, how do you use environmental storytelling to get that out? How to use narrative moments and beats and puzzles and solves? There's a lot of tools in your toolkit to get the same results. But you want to vary it up. And also, at the end, you want them to have a through line or a story. Otherwise, you're just making an obstacle course.
0: I think the analogy is actually dead on because, I mean, that's really, you're right. When you are making an experience, you're basically manipulating people's neurochemicals, which is exactly what drugs do. Yeah. Hopefully with less disastrous effects. Natural high, but yeah. Yeah, but it's not a bad analogy. On this subject, I mean, we've talked about this, and I know that some people have had some less than seller things to say about Stash House and the theme and the story that it's working with. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I mean, we definitely wanted to take the world very seriously because obviously looking at everything from like the Sackler family and the opioid crisis all the way to people who have suffered because of, of, you know, and I am very, very like strongly opposed to any kind of drug criminalization. I think drugs should be decriminalized. I think people who are addicts should not be penalized. The justice system is obviously incredibly fraught with issues involving drug and addiction. People have been murdered. I get the drug industry is very fraught with blood and violence, and there's a lot of issues. I get that. And so we wanted to approach it with some level of sensitivity, but also our inspirations at this were The Wire and Breaking Bad, which in my mind are two of the greatest series ever created, and they deal with that subject.
0: Ray definitely has some strong Stringer Bell
1: influences. 100%. So The Wire was a big influence in the writing of David Simon, looking at Grand Theft Auto even, and the fact that, again, you have these three major, major pieces of entertainment, two series and a game series that deal with real issues, some more grounded than others. Some rare people have called us out and said, like, my brother is an addict. And I'm sorry, I, I feel bad, horrible if, you, if you've been personally afflicted with the tragedy of someone who's been affected by drugs. But the story and the world of drugs are real, and there are interesting narratives you can tell. We wanted to do a crime thriller. Crime and thriller and mystery are like my favorite genres to play with. And the idea, okay, we're playing with crime. Well, what is the crime? In my mind, murder is is hard to get into unless you're doing a murder mystery. If you're doing any kind of grisly murder crime scene stuff, to me, I actually have a really strong aversion to violence. I, I i am a huge animal lover i grew up playing games and you'd think that that would desensitize me but i am i think even more versed to physical violence now than i ever was so i didn't want to deal with violence in any sort of form at least having to commit violence or see the immediate aftermath i didn't want to deal with sex crimes or anything in that nature because that just gets very icky and a lot of problems and again subject matter so it's like drugs are kind of this weird space There are tons of films and stories about drugs, Pulp Fiction, Traffic. Look at Oscar-winning films that align with the drug world and the world of crime. And not to say that means it's right, but it's a realistic thing that affects people that also, in my mind, has a lot of interesting stories. You're dealing with people that are struggling with greed and betrayal, and that just felt like this sort of area that could also align with an L.A. story. We want to tell a story that was very specifically L.A. set. So, David, earlier you asked, like, what's the DNA of what made Stash House memorable? Is this is a game you could only play in L.A.? You can go play a bank heist or a jailbreak. You know, what is a storyline that is just direct to you? That is you see the title and you're like, oh, that sounds very specific. So Stash House was originally the name of the room. We had some generic like lockbox as a company. But the more we sat and looked at the thing, Stash House was such an evocative direct title that this makes sense to create a thing that that embodies it well you know so i think the name actually came before we had the full game flushed out but it's really about playing with what's unique so it's taking the crime and drug world and trying to do the same approach that again grand theft auto breaking bad in the wire did it is a dark story with real characters that has a splash of dark humor in it And that was sort of always our goal, was to have moments of levity and gritty reality, sort of dancing in the same space, but always in the proper ratio and in a way that, again, was not trying to make light or be disrespectful to people who have been affected negatively, but to also take people on a journey. We've had people who say they've been drug dealers or have dated them we've had people pull out drugs at stash house and show us they like what they're holding and our reactions are both horrified because i am not at all involved in that world but also from an area of fascination of like, oh, wait, that's what drugs look like in a bag. Should we be making changes? Should we be changing the consistency? Because our drugs are baking powder. Uh, Should we be changing that? So I'm honored that people who have gone through it have felt there is some verisimilitude to what the world is. But again, we've always made it feel it's heightened. It's narrative. It's not meant to make light of anyone in particular. And if people are offended, then I can say, don't come play our room then.
0: You've talked a little bit about the stakes of Stash House. And I know that throughout your work, you put a lot of thought into the stakes of any experience that you're creating. What do you think most escape rooms get wrong when they're setting stakes for their
1: experience? I think stakes are really interesting because they can vary in scale. People often think the bigger, the better. But some of the most meaningful experiences I've had, in whether it's a video game or watching a narrative, it doesn't matter what I'm consuming, but the stakes can be incredibly small and meaningful. So it's not about the scale. People think, well, the world is going to end. And at that point, it's like, yeah, that's very generic. I kind of like specific stakes. When someone says you're going to die in an hour, narratively, I know I'm not going to die. I know in an hour I will be not dead, hopefully. So when you dangle that, there is a bit of disconnect. Now, I think the challenge is if we are threatening to arrest you. So we, we aren't threatening that you're going to be dead. But the threat and the looming threat can build up in a realistic way if the sequence of the, the narrative and the escalation of that threat is reminded to you throughout the experience, and the space keeps changing and evolving to get you that adrenaline pumping moment at the end. That's really cool. But to me, I actually find smaller stakes or more personalized stakes. So the difference is I'm going to kill all the people in the world, or here's a character that we've introduced you to who you really like, and this person in an hour is going to be executed if you don't do this. And to me, that's an easy thing to wrap your head around because you're able to personify those stakes in an external factor that may or may not be alive in an hour or may or may not be there but you can relate to them and look at them and see them and have a very one-to-one relationship. So it's ironic that bigger stakes tend to mean you just sort of roll your eyes because giant stakes are everywhere. Every film and every game seemingly has some giant like repercussions. But I find really personalized or synecdoche taking a small piece and using it to represent the whole. So instead of saying all of humanity is going to die, it's like here's a cute little girl who, oh, no, the world's going to end. Well, Susie going to go. It's a lot easier to look at that individual character and be sad if that character is taken away from you versus saying all of humanity
0: it's sort of like people respond and you see it on the news. People respond more to an individual being murdered than to the concept of mass murder happening somewhere.
1: Right. And that, that is a part of humanity. Like human beings in general, we are black boxes built to survive. And it's hard to explain why humans respond the way they do it, just the way our lines of code in our brain work. But there is something about to keep the topic light, looking at something like genocide, like the Holocaust. And the idea of our brains cannot comprehend the mass tragedy of something that big. But when you're able to go to a memorial or the Holocaust Museum, and what the museum in D.C. does so horrifically but brilliantly is being able to, when you walk through the museum, you're given an individual card featuring one person, and you will learn about their specific journey. And at the end of the museum, you'll learn whether or not they lived or died. It is taking a single individual character or story or person and humanizing it and being able to pull away from the idea that our brains get paralyzed, taking in massive amounts of data, whether it is something tragic or something even delightful, large numbers make our brains hurt, and we shut down at that. So when you try to make a story meaningful or trying to convey the true scope or scale, sometimes breaking that down, ironically enough, can give you a better piece of the whole. I completely agree. I think that so
0: much of the escape room medium, you can't convey a lot. So you need to go and lean on what people already know, the stuff that's already in the culture and will resonate with them, as well as stuff that will just resonate with humans in general. So I think that the more personal you make the experience, the better. It's sort of John Wick avenging his dog rather than stopping a terrorist who's going to blow up the White House.
1: No, I mean, you're right. Personal stakes. And and I don't mean to say when I speak of genocide or larger topics, I don't ever want people to think that I'm trying to be insensitive. It's just really in speaking about how you connect with human beings in a story context, like human beings as a framework for conveying information. Yeah, is, is hard to break down specifics of how human beings operate. But on the storytelling level, you're right. Being able to break down a larger set of data and connect with what people have resonate with them is really smaller stories even if they're reflective of a larger one
0: we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor virtual escape games virtual escape games specializes in virtual team building adventures for teams anywhere around the globe 24 hours a day seven days a week
2: I love playing virtual escape rooms, but if you're anything like my group of friends, a lot of times we like to play last minute or late at night. That's why I'm so excited that Virtual Escape Games has now introduced a non-hosted version of their most popular games, so you can play their games at a time that's convenient for everyone. They have a ton of fun nostalgic themes from different times in pop culture history like 80s workout video y2k cyberpunk or 90s summer camp slasher movie themes these games are the perfect introduction for beginners to puzzle games and i think even experienced enthusiasts will have a lot of fun playing this
0: for non-hosted games one to six players you can get 20 percent off using the code REA20. And for your team building adventures, you can also knock off 20% with the code TB20. All of this is available for you at virtualescapegames.com. These details are in the show notes. On a related subject, you put a lot of emphasis on designing the right experience for the medium, and you work in a lot of different mediums. How do you go about identifying what's right or wrong for a given medium?
1: I think it's the strengths of that medium. I'm really obsessed with what are things you can really only do well in that particular medium. Uh, A really good example, there is a book called A Kiss Before Dying. And it is written in a way that you are not certain who your lead character is. And it is fascinating because you could not really do that in any other form or adaptation of that work. For example, if you cast a radio version or an audiobook, and you have a character who has an outward-facing gender, whether it's a masculine or feminine voice, that is immediately going to change your perception of your character. But if you have text with no actual audio, you can't take anything identifying out of it you may not know the race the gender the whatever of this character and you can tell a whole novel without constraining it and have the identity of that character be a surprise you cannot really do that in any other form you can't do that in a film in anything immersive in a video game like it's impossible and so i love leaning into constraints or into benefits of a piece or a medium that lends itself to a thing that works really well in that space so it's leaning into what is the intent of the piece are you looking to romance someone make someone fall in love are you looking to scare the crap out of them are you looking to entertain are you looking to challenge you know breaking down the theme of the piece i look at sort of designing in those spaces as sort of putting down a tent you're staking down the things you know and you can have flexibility if like i know we're doing a horror piece okay it's scary we have that part of the tent staked down and then we know where we can go in the area for making it a scary experience what's the medium okay it is a walkthrough experience it's open world okay if it's walkthrough well guess what you can control where the audience is going to go you have arrows they walk in a clear linear fashion you can organize scares that way oh no this isn't walk through anymore now it's open world guests can go at any point wherever they want in a non-linear fashion well that changes the toolkit you have your tent is now having to move over to a different area because you can only stake down the stuff that won't work with open world. So now you're looking at, okay, is it more the content? Is it more gags that are ambient? So it's really looking at the tools you have, the resources you have, the budget, the space, the story, and just figuring out, okay, I need to identify these constraints and then I can actually start designing the thing because there are so many different types of tools to be used in any sort of format. When I say immersive, there's dozens of formats. So it's really even drilling down to the more specific thing and figuring out, okay, there's a separate toolkit for all of these different styles. Are we doing a group walkthrough or an individual walkthrough? Different tools. I really like drilling down whether it's working for a client or even working for myself, identifying the things I have control of and the things I don't. I know it's going to be in the space. It's this big. I have this budget. Okay, cool. I now have those limitations I need and I can actually begin designing. I truly
0: agree with this. And I think about it in terms of like adapting a novel or a comic book to film. If you take, for example, the novel Good Omens, which was written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, the novel has a lot of footnotes, which are basically commentary by the main character throughout. These are handled in the Amazon series adaptation, which was quite enjoyable. They're handled in voiceover which it's inherently part of part of a film and filmmaking. But it doesn't feel special in the way that it felt special in this novel, because it's just not something that was normally done. It made the way that it was written stand out, whereas a voiceover doesn't stand out as anything special. Everything has voiceover. Sometimes it's weird when there isn't voiceover.
2: Tommy, I know you've done some interesting things within a medium as well. Like, uh, I remember you telling me about a business card that have with a puzzle on it. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, early days, I mean, Stash House took us a lot longer to build than it should have because we didn't really know what we were doing. And then, you know, we figured it out uh, because it was putting into practice a lot of ideas. And it was credit card and our own money, mainly tons and time. We didn't have a lot of expertise and money to hire the right people. So it was a lot of making mistakes and and begging for favors. So in that ensuing time of building, there is different like mixers we are invited to to go promote Stash House, even though it wasn't going to open for six months. So flyers are kind of the de facto thing people pass around. And it, it puzzled me why you're promoting a puzzle and game experience. Why don't you make the flyer a game? Why don't you have games and things on it? Now I've seen some that have a riddle or two, you know, solve this riddle or solve this very small puzzle for a discount. But seeing ones in world I'd never seen before. I think that's changed a little bit now, but on the whole, that had been very foreign. So I basically was like, okay, there's a meetup happening in three days. Can I make a business card for Ray and make a puzzle that when you solved it, it would add you to our beta test list? Because I was structuring in my head how we wanted to start testing, and we needed a lot of people. I have a very strong opinion about testing and iterative design that just needs lots of bodies to go through in your different phases. And so I'm like, cool, this will help us recruit people, promote the game, and maybe do an experiment to see if this thing would work. So yeah, I, I did a business card that was a Ray's business card, and it was missing his email address. And it basically said on the like a little four-lined or 6 line poem on the top that said like, whoever figures out my email address, email me and you'll get added to the list. So people had to essentially destroy the card to solve it. And then once they did, they would get added to our beta list.
0: You just mentioned your design and iteration process your testing process which you do a lot of responding to the way that people are responding to your work yeah can you explain how that works because i don't know that many people who actively approach (laughs) work the way that
1: you do i think you mean you don't know a lot of crazy people who are willing to do what i do um
2: tommy's an insane person he beta like you must run hundreds of beta tests
1: I mean, we, I can, I have a sheet with every bit of data that we collected, but so it wasn't hundreds, but it was dozens. Uh, It was a lot of them. So I really like designing in a way of actual responding to the work I'm producing and then how people respond and leaning into the things that people naturally want to do or explore, because you're responding to the idea of why are you building this in the first place? And you get into a lot of philosophy about, I want to scare people or entertain people. I think some people just want to torture people or prove you're smarter. To me, I want people to walk out feeling smart and connected and entertained. That's really important to me. And so in the early days of Stash House, we wanted to see how people moved around the space. And so our very first groups, we had... Probably 10%, 15% of the puzzles actually even there, and they're almost all present in cardboard form, where they're on construction paper with marker. They weren't really designed well. It was just a chance to get people in the space moving around. And for the very first tests, we were actually in the room in a corner watching them and taking notes on what they did. We knew that would affect the testing results early because people respond differently when observed than when they're observed remotely uh, via camera, for example. But we knew it was worth that. So we just had people move around the space and identified what areas are they avoiding? What areas are they going to? And then literally the group would leave. We'd have half an hour to move stuff around and see, okay, they didn't go to this thing. Why? And we're like, well, maybe this area is not as well lit. And so we played with lighting and with movement and the natural architecture of the space we designed and just saw, okay, are people naturally avoiding an area? Are people naturally going back to an area? And what are areas people are going to explore first? So we played with color, with lighting, with movement, with placement. And that was all very valuable to see. And so people naturally, because of the layout of the room, would go to a certain area. Well, we're gonna put a puzzle there because naturally people will discover that in a space they wanna go to. People obviously respond to strong lighting. So that was just figuring out the placement and using bodies. And so it was a back and forth of building the room out, the structure of the space, and then once we were happy with that, then we began actually refining the puzzle content. And what was really valuable was, it's not just about the feedback. Feedback is, to be blunt, pretty useless. People will give you feedback verbally from an experience, but they're only able to explain it from a human being as a fabulist. They are in charge of their narrative, and they will explain things as if they're in charge of every decision they make. Psychology, I studied in school. I love it. Read like David Eagleman's uh, Incognito, The Secret Life of the Brain, these different books that will explain a lot about how we are creatures of impulse and have a really hard time actually being in full control of our reactions and what we do.
0: Humans are very good at justifying their actions. They're not that great at planning and premeditating their actions.
1: Yeah, and we're hairless monkeys that are basically evolved to live in the woods running away from tigers. And the fact that we live in concrete, complex cities doesn't change the fact that we're still these very primal creatures that are not meant to be thinking internally a lot. It's painful to think about why you did the thing you did, and it's very scary to realize you actually have very little control over a lot of the impulses you have and do. Your body makes decisions for you and locks them in long before you've thought about why you want to do something. So when someone says, I did X because of Y, yes, it is valuable to hear that, but that is only a small part of the picture. People bleed their data all over the floor, but you're only listening to the actual analysis of a person analyzing their own behavior, which is only a very small part of the picture. So we had people going on the room and we were watching where they went. Now I could say, David, when the game first began, what did you do? Tell me what you did. And you're going to narrate it from a perspective of you being active. I mean, I can tell you
0: what I first did. I watched Errol on a stripper pole.
1: That's true. That's true. <laughs> I don't know if he took his shoes off before or after that, but yeah. Um <laughs> But so the idea of, of watching people move around a space and then say why you did what you did, well, most people can't even tell you why you did what you did. Why did you get out of bed that way? A lot of impulses and things are much clearer when you have data of, well, okay, someone says they did X. That's great. It's helpful to hear if they were misclued. And that. so I, I don't mean to dismiss verbal feedback at all. It, it only gives you part of the story when, let's say, you say, I went over here for X. But you also have the data that... That person's an anomaly, and 20 people went over to Y instead, and you realize, oh, well, that area's darker than the other place. So it's having the data set of what are people doing. A good example, there was one particular puzzle that people kept giving feedback on that they did not like. It was one that involved you finding two bits of information. You would find one half in an easy-to-find area. The second half was in a harder-to-find area. People would find the first half very early, and they would look at it and think they had everything they needed to solve something. They didn't. They were missing something. Visually, the information, it looks like you have everything you need. I did not want to add one of two. To me, that's not a very satisfying way of doing it. But people kept complaining, saying the puzzle was not very satisfying because they couldn't relate why. They just said it was bad design. They didn't care for it. didn't make sense. All the excuses as to why it wasn't good. Now, I have no ego. I'm happy to throw out something. But I was curious because I noticed that people complaining were the ones that found part one first spent time on it, a few minutes, would leave, find part two, come back to it, and then solve it. Then I was like, well, what if there was a way to visually clarify you were missing something? So you didn't spend any time at all on part one, knowing, oh, I'm missing something. So instead of putting one of two, I, we still gave people half the info, but aligned it differently. So when it was cut in half, actual letters and visually stuff was cut in half you knew you were missing something. The puzzle was the exact same. You added implied usage. Yes. And as soon as we did that, the puzzle went from being the most disliked to being the most liked. Had we listened to the verbal feedback alone, we would have tossed that out. But having looked at the data, people that complained about it were the ones that had frustration with it and didn't understand or couldn't articulate their experience with it very well. It changes that. Yeah, and this
0: is I've said it before, I'll say it again. When I design things and when I'm testing things, I record people using it. I record yes. their facial expressions 1000 times yes, because you can see when somebody is frustrated or angry or happy or sad or joyful. Whatever it is they're feeling is on their face. And then the feedback that I ask for is either to clarify the moments that I saw in them or to ask them for feedback that I know they want to give because they feel they need to give it.
1: Feedback is such a challenging thing and you nailed it. Like- It is looking at both data sets together, the verbal feedback and the data that's behind and combining them to a bigger picture, because really you're wanting to make an experience that people have chipped away at the rough edges, and there's no way to design around it. You have to test. And so for me, it's about testing right is doing the big picture, and every time you refine and refine until the changes get smaller. So we didn't invest in any permanent painting or actual technology at all until we knew the placement was good. And the puzzle worked. And then we would actually go to the step of locking it in. And then from there, it's about testing and refining with not people who are invited, but real people. And that's just opening. So we considered our our first month a soft launch because, you know, David, you and I have talked about this, that the best and most honest testers you will ever have are people that don't know you who are paying for the service. They are treating it psychologically like a true customer. One of the big mistakes that I see people make is assuming that even if
0: you don't know your beta testers, in most players' cases, whether they're paying for it or not will affect the way that they are taking in the experience. Unless they're like me and just can't even keep track of what I'm paying for versus (laughs) what I'm not paying for and just kind of stopped caring, it's genuinely hard for most people to go and differentiate between the thing they got for free versus the thing that they spent the money that they worked hard to
1: earn on. And so that's your final step. In my mind, we were not done designing until after a month from opening. We would analyze every game, watch how people behaved. We would talk to them afterwards and just keep updating and tweaking. Again, not making massive changes, but again, smoothing it down to the point where changes are small. We would still have our staff write down suggestions or if they noticed anything that they were seeing with fresh eyes. That's just really important to consider that the thing is not done. At some point you just have to abandon it you know in my mind stash house has a lot of things that i want to add or change or tweak from what we originally had but at a certain point you can either spend that time repolishing the thing over and over again until you've essentially rebuilt it or you move on to the next thing i think Saturday Night Live has a really good analogy in that the sketches are not done because they're done. They're done because it's 1130. It's time to go on. <laughs> and having a natural deadline or limit for when you feel it's good enough. And obviously, if anything egregious happens, you want to keep it in good repair. And if anything egregious is popping up that is blocking people consistently, then you want to address it. But at a certain point, if the hints you're giving and the issues people are having are sort of scattered random noise, then you move on and go to your next thing.
0: Hey folks, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something that I've been working on with a bunch of people from the team over here for years. We've been wanting to host Recon, the Reality Escape convention in person in Boston for a very long time. And circumstances have halted that effort, but not this year, we're doing it. August 21st and 22nd of 2022, in Boston. Recon is happening. We are blending Escape Room Conference with the tours we've been producing for years to produce a proper escape room convention. You'll meet people, you'll play games, you'll hear wonderful talks. It's going to be a great time, and I truly hope that you come and join us. Tickets for Recon are available now. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes. On the subject of iterating fast and shipping, because at some point you have to ship, for quite a few years now, you have been collaborating with Jeb Havens to coach escape jams. They're frantic and fun, and we've been hosting virtual escape jams with you and Jeb through all the pandemic shutdowns. What have been your biggest lessons from helping others through the act of rapid escape room
1: creation?
2: Can you guys please explain what on earth is a game jam and how it works?
1: I mean, it stems from the concept of a jam band, a band that just gets together, and just plays music and doesn't have sort of a plan for what they're going to do. So game jams quickly became a thing, which is like, I'm a game developer and we just want to spend a day making a game. And the goal is to have, unlike a jam band where you're just messing around, a game jam has the intended purpose of after X number of hours, you aim to have something finished and then you can all share it with no commercial expectations or anything other than just maybe a panel judges and you can share with the world. But it's really to get the idea of constraints and, and not really getting the chance to do something you normally do if you're a developer in real life. Uh, a lot of companies uh, will do this occasionally. The company Double Fine does a thing called Amnesia Fortnite where they will stop everything for a few weeks and just build a random, weird demo that the developers want to play with because it makes you a sharper developer when you're able to experiment and iterate in small batches that have no consequence rather than trying to put that in the massive project you're working on. So when Jeb founded the Game Jam, he came from the board game world and from video games, and he'd just gotten into escape rooms in that space. And it was really exciting just seeing that approach to escape from design because I'd never seen a person host or or want to play with that. And since then, I've seen, you know, a 24-hour immersive festival. You have, you know, same thing with like film festivals where like shoot this film in 24 hours. So I love those constraints. I think they bring about really interesting creative decision making and you don't have time to overthink things. I think overthinking and fear are what hold people back and getting that sort of trained out of you is really valuable. So when Jeb first did it, I I was there. He got an Airbnb, and the premise was you would be sort of matched with a random team. I did not know anyone there, and I was matched with some random people, and I was very nervous because I had no idea what was going to happen, and this was like a 12-hour thing. So the premise was you were given a room of the house. You could make up your story. There were a box of props in the middle of the room that you could take and use. And the idea was that it didn't have to function as a a keypad could literally be a piece of cardboard with markers drawn on it. And you, as your game designer, would be following around the players. And if someone went up the keypad, you would have them narrate what they're doing. It's like, I'm typing 451. Boop, boop, boop. Now it's open. So it was all very DIY imaginary stuff, but it still would function in the same way that puzzles would work. And so my first game was we were given the bedroom and the bathroom and had to figure out a game. The game was 15 minutes. And shortly after starting, we would have to test stuff, puzzles, individual puzzles, bring people through with the goal of you're constantly testing and refining. And I obviously love that model. That was sort of my approach with Stash House. And so getting to do that in a rapid fire environment was really exciting. And I ended up bonding really well with my team. They're now friends. And it's just really cool to see what people can do with fear and constraints removed. After that, Jeb and I became close friends. And, and so I've helped mentor every game gym, it seems, since. And it's, it's really, really fun. I genuinely love watching people come together and create weird stuff that you don't have to worry about the business practicals for. There's just some weird, amazing stuff I've seen people do. And I think there's a moment that I love. When you see people sort of sitting there getting a sense of what's going on and then the story begins to gel and people get the sense of like, oh, we can do weird stuff. We can have actors. We can have everyone in our design team can be an actor. We can do weird, crazy stuff that we don't normally get to do. And that level of like when that clicks for people, sometimes it's super early. Sometimes it's super late. But inevitably, most people playing have that moment of realizing your limitations are gone and you can do something you've always wanted to try. And that's just really, really cool. And then also, when people test and they walk away having just tested something for the first time and have this moment of, okay, I know you may not be a professional game designer. You just saw a group test. What was your experience watching them play? And letting that person or that group have the insight of them extrapolating the data from the players playing. They're like, yeah, well, we got verbal feedback. But I'm like, I know you got feedback, but what did you think? Were they having fun? And they're like, no, this person was bored. They looked frustrated. And getting to instill those lessons, you can talk to the Kasko about it. But until you put a person in front of someone else they learn, oh, these moments of how testing is valuable. And that immediately gives them ideas to be like, I know how to fix it. And they'll go run and fix their thing and make it better. And I love it when people get equipped or learn that they have those tools within them.
0: For me, when we started doing these virtual escape jams where people were making virtual escape games, I had two favorite moments every time we did it. The first was right after... We made everyone do their first round of testing, yeah. and watching people panic when they realized how far off the mark they were, and then the second follow-up favorite, and they're they're related, was when people ran their final game of the day after a couple rounds of iteration, and seeing that the process works of going from idea to building the idea poorly to figuring out what's wrong through a round of testing to adding to it, testing again and realizing it's still not quite right and then making a whole bunch of last minute changes and all of a sudden they're able to pull it together in that last minute and they have a new team come in and play it and it's just great. Watching people realize that They're capable of doing it, that there's a process that they can follow and that it works. And seeing what people are able to accomplish on a very short timeline with a small group of people and just the originality, the uniqueness of what has come out of those has been so wonderful.
1: And no, I agree. Like there is something very magical when it, I mean, it's a long day. It's like eight hours of design and running and working without a lot of break. And what's amazing is it goes by very fast. But what's amazing too is after people run their last game, they're like, oh, is that's it. Like, what now? And it's like, no, now it's like a little sand mandala. You just, you sweep it away. It's like the thing exists as an ephemeral act and work, but the lessons live on. And that excitement and adrenaline of people getting the chance to let people play a creation that did not exist a few hours before in that form and letting it polish It's just very magical. There's a a rule that I was taught early on in school, which was never turn in a first draft. Even if you have to write a really bad first draft, give yourself a bit of time to reread it before turning it in. Because at the very least, turn in a second draft, you have an ellipsis of time on. Human beings naturally want to be lazy. And so if I can find a reason to put things off until they're due, I will do it. But if I can do two things, if I can tie social pressure to, okay, it's due on Friday. If I have someone read it or test it and schedule that for Monday, it forces me to have something probably very bad done by Monday. And at least I will have between Monday and Friday to actually make it better. And that to me is just really valuable is having that built in model of whatever kind of thing you're doing, having the feedback and the ability for your intended audience to engage with it and then adjust. And this just instills that in every aspect to hopefully lay people as well as professional designers.
0: I'm right there with you. Tommy, what comes next for you?
1: Good question. Most of my life is under the blanket of NDAs, which is really fun. I feel very lucky in that I get to work on really, really cool stuff. But it also kind of sucks because I can't talk about it. And in my mind, I always like having a personal thing or two. Stash House has always been that beacon I can always point to of something. I do a lot of client work. I work with brands. I work with IP and, and companies like Disney. I'm working with them again, which is lovely when you don't have to actually work for them. You work with them, working on stuff with Google and just really cool stuff. And so hopefully someday when something is public, I can talk about it. But most of it is NDA, uh, unfortunately. So it's just doing a lot of that stuff. And I think for me, I like going to do things that scare me a little bit that are with people that I really respect. Life is very short uh, and and I spend it years unhappy. So in my mind, I try to analyze the projects and things I work on as things that I feel that I can genuinely contribute to that are interesting to me and are either going to teach me something or give me a chance to do good or work with like a good example. I worked with an amazing theater company out of New York called Linked Dance Theater that did an online show for Seth Rogen's charity. I was about Alzheimer's. It was one of the most moving things I've worked on because I lost my mom and my grandfather to Alzheimer's. It was very personal. I will probably get it at some point, which genuinely does terrify me. So yeah, it was a chance to work on an online show that was very challenging to do over Zoom with very tough subject matter, but a chance to tell a story that was hopeful, that had interactive moments. I co-wrote it with the two amazing Kendra and Jordan, the two amazing directors of the show. And runners of that theater company and i would loved it because i could actually talk about it my sisters could go see it so i do like having some projects i can share with people but yeah most of them live in nda land and
2: okay tommy's being super humble tommy you've had a couple of projects that have recently wrapped or come out like you worked on i don't know delusion or other things there's some projects you can't talk about anything that has come out already
1: Yeah, like Delusion, I worked on this year's show, which was really challenging, but I uh, having gone a few, uh, like a month after I had wrapped work on it was really cool because I was able to look at it with fresh eyes and see people enjoying it. And even though it was very challenging to do while in the thick of it, seeing the reaction, and even though, again, I look and only see the stuff we had to cut or that didn't make it, I was thrilled with how it turned out. So that was nice. And I think after the pandemic, especially, being able to do an in-person show and see people having fun and exploring and being immersed in this was really, really rewarding. And I think just in general, I try not to talk about stuff. Just I don't like talking in a turn and telling other people's stories. So I, I think just my default is just silence about stuff. This is why I focused all my questions on Stash House.
2: Tommy is so humble. We go to escape rooms all the time and people, they're like, why didn't you tell us you were coming or why didn't you introduce yourself beforehand?
1: (laughs) You know, I mean, I I don't want to, there are other creators I've been around who are very arrogant about that. And like, to me, it's like, I, I, people know who I am. That's great. Like I, I don't ever want to like presume people care about who I am or why I'm there. I also don't like asking for comps. I've got to a point where I, don't need to and I I like supporting businesses so I pay full price for everything I like going through and just supporting because to me there was a time when that was not the case and I love supporting people in the industry and so again it's important to me that I don't like try to ever feel like I'm asking anyone for anything and so yeah I just show up to places and if people know who I am that's like it's very surreal to me still I have nothing but imposter syndrome. Tommy where
0: can people find you on social media?
1: Facebook is a cancer uh, and it's horrible so I don't like that. Twitter, I don't use, so you can find me there, but uh, don't expect a response. You can see funny things I retweeted seven years ago. But my website, Tommyhaunton.com, has my email, and if you want to send me jokes or death threats, feel free to do either. I, I welcomely receive any comment of any kind. I love supporting this industry, and I, as I always say to anyone, like if there's ever any way that I can utilize whatever limited and tiny influence or voice I have in the space, I want to do it. Advocacy is super important. That's why I really... I'm proud of being involved with Andrew Preble and Ergo and the rest of the amazing team on that, which is the sort of the escape room organizing group trying to push advocacy in everything from, you know, pandemic relief funds, all the way to looking at insurance costs and measures about safety and just trying to get a universal standard for escape rooms. I'm also part of a group called Leia in Los Angeles that is trying to create a similar thing for the immersive theater industry. So advocacy and and sort of pushing better standards and making the space more accessible for creators And audiences and workers in the space is really important to me so reach out thank you so much tommy it is always a pleasure to chat
0: with you and we could probably do another three hours and (laughs) still not stop talking but i think we're gonna have to call it an episode here tommy will be joining us for our patreon exclusive episode where we will be digging into all sorts of other stuff so hopefully you join us over there The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I'd like to take a minute to talk to y'all from the heart. PG and I put a lot into making all of these episodes, as do the team that is off-microphone My wife, Lisa, Steve, our editor, put a ton into producing this podcast. All of this is made possible because of the support from our Patreon community. That financial support allows us to invest in the production value of what we're making and allows us to inch our way towards making this into a proper career. It's hard to monetize content these days, and our Patreon community really does allow us to do that. And we're really trying to grow. So we put out extra bonus episodes for our patrons. We have a spoilers club for higher level backers. We've got a discord chat and we're always adding new things to the mix for our patrons. So if you love what we're doing, please consider supporting us. It means more than you could ever imagine. And you'll get a whole bunch of extra content too. Thank you again to all our patrons. If you aren't one, I hope you become one.
2: Speaking of our Patreon supporters, I want to take a moment to thank some of our highest level backers. This podcast would not exist without your support. Thank you so much to Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Jonathan Driscoll, Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, and Scott Olson. Thank you so much for your support
1: so when we first began building stash house we have a gate that comes down and it would often get tagged and it's annoying to have to repaint over that so when we were decorating stash house we were looking at every environment or every area you opened up was thematically tied to a different area of la meant to be visually very different and we were struggling on what the final room would look like. It was the bathroom and it was the moment of tension where you're flushing the drugs, been going to the space. So finally it was like, well, what if we make this bathroom dingy and dark and just gritty and, and resemble the neighborhood? And what if we just have people tag it? So the question came up of, well, how do we get people to tag the bathroom? They seem to have no problem tagging our, our gate. So I did two things to see if it would work. We, I put a sign outside basically saying, hello, taggers, if you wouldn't mind, like, tagging our bathroom. And I put a Craigslist misconnection ad. We got responses, we got a lot of them. Most of them were young, like under 16. They came in with everything from spray paint cans to paint pens, and they tagged our bathroom. We said the only thing was nothing profane and nothing like vehemently anti-cop because we didn't want, again, to start any kind of like horrible sort of messaging campaign back and forth. So as long as it was neither one of those things, they could write whatever they wanted. And so for a half a day, people kept coming through. We offered them pizza and drinks. They left their tagger names and we learned a lot about the tagging world.
2: This sounds like entrapment.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, people were nervous and they showed up and once one person or two people vouched for us, more people showed up. And what's funny is, After that moment, our gate didn't get tagged for, I think, almost two years.